Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturdays at 5.30 and Sundays in person and online at 10. We look forward to connecting with you. A reading from Isaiah 53, 1 through 12. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheeps before its shearers are silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had no, done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The word of the Lord. Good morning. I figured we'd be a little light today uh, due to the snow, but as I was walking in, uh, Corey Kloss let me know it was actually because they told everyone I was preaching, and so people just decided to stay home today. And then, uh, where's, where's Coach at? Uh, oh, there's Coach right there. Saw him walking in, and he goes, you know, no pressure. We all came out in the snow, and you're up, so you better make it worth our while. Um, so no pressure at all today, not to mention we're going through Isaiah 53, uh, which is like the, you know, the ultimate passage in the Old Testament. 
So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling loose. I'm feeling good. It'll be great today. Excited to be here with you all. Um, the truth is, uh, I, uh, I was actually talking to someone else this morning. I live most of my life, um, and I don't know if you resonate with this, uh, waiting for the other shoe to drop. Does anyone know my, what I mean by that? Like, like maybe everything is going fine, and you just have this like sense within you that like it's only a matter of time until things get bad again. Anyone ever feel that? And, and like maybe if a few things go wrong and you're like, okay, yeah, like how much worse can it get? Well, probably worse. Like things could probably get worse. I feel like that's just kind of the state that I find myself living in. I'm always waiting for the other shoe to drop. Uh, this past Monday, um, the other shoe dropped when I was racing home from a lunch appointment uh, because I'd finally found a contractor to come and meet me at my house so he could look at my bathroom because three weeks ago, uh, I had noticed some bubbling in the sheetrock and uh, I was like, that's not supposed to do that. And so I started pressing on it and uh, my hand went through the wall. And I was like, that's really not supposed to happen. Drywall is not supposed to do that. Uh, so I realized there was some sort of leak, started pulling away drywall, and I found what can only be described as a mold monster growing in my bathroom walls. Um, and there was a, a pipe that had been slow leaking that had finally burst cracked and it was just spewing water into our bathroom. There was like standing water. Uh, so I was, I was racing home from this lunch appointment to, to deal with that, to meet a contractor who was going to give us an estimate on how much it would cost to fix it. And so we could send that to insurance. And on my way home, as I'm driving my truck, uh, the accelerator, it, like I press it down and it just, it stops responding. Like it, the truck just kind of starts lurching. Uh, and so I pull over, and I leave it on the side of the road, and I walk home to meet the contractor that's there to tell me how much it's going to cost to fix my bathroom. Now, I get that none of that like, qualifies as suffering. I really do. Like At the most, it's just kind of an inconvenience, and it's kind of funny. Uh, but to be honest, it, it was kind of that like death by a thousand paper cuts uh, that like life had just been adding up and it, it felt like just the, the kind of pinnacle of what the last few weeks had looked like for our family. And, uh, and so as I sat in the truck getting ready to walk home to meet this contractor, I was like, really? Like, like this too? Like I can't even get home to fix my house. It, it just felt like death by a thousand paper cuts and everything had added up. The other shoe had dropped and uh, all my fears were being realized. Now, sometimes that's life, right? It's just like the, the cumulative effect of all we have to endure, all we go through, the, the job that doesn't satisfy us, the, the marriage that we feel lonely in, the things that are, are causing just struggling and frustration. It's not the big stuff that, that we think is going to end us, but it's just this kind of cumulative effect of all that we have to endure. And yet at other times, let's face it, there, there are bigger things that come into our lives. Cancer, divorce. Those things that, that when they come into our lives, they, they feel all-encompassing. We can't escape it. We can't get past the pain and the sorrow that those things are causing in our lives. And, and the hurt runs much deeper than a truck that's broken down on the side of the road or a bathroom that's leaking and growing mold. It's those spaces where we're hurting. And let's be honest, most of us are, we're pretty good at, at masking that moment. 
Whether it's the, the death by a thousand paper cuts or the big things that feel more like an amputation in our lives, most of us are pretty good at hiding that and pretending like everything is all right, we're well adjusted, we're successful, we've got it all together. No one outside needs to know what's going on internally. And for some of us, we, we've come to that place because we've done a lot of therapy and we've taken the right medications and so we've dealt with the depression or the anxiety or the grief. For others of us, we're just really, really good at never slowing down and never stopping. Am I right? Like we, we wake up and it's hard to get out of bed in the morning, but once we are out of bed, we go so fast and do not stop because we know that if we ever took our foot off the gas, that we would be overwhelmed with the dissatisfaction and the longing and the frustration that we have in life. But we're great at masking what's going on inside. One of my favorite authors right now, I've actually referenced him a few times, uh, Alan Noble. He says that in these moments where we struggle in everyday life, we, we come to understand that, that there's this reality in this life that all symphonies remain unfinished. All symphonies, and what I think he means by that is even the best moments, even the moments that are really good leave us with a sense of longing, like something is not quite complete, like something is missing. I don't know if you felt that way or if I'm just alone on this cold Sunday morning, but uh, my guess is that if we sat down to coffee and you trusted me enough with your story, that, that even in this room or those watching online, there would be any number of traumas and tragedies and heartaches that you've endured in this life. None of us makes it through life without carrying wounds. And there's a, a similar kind of theme, if, if you're hearing all that and like, my goodness, it was cold, I got up this morning and you're just giving us like this big Debbie Downer of a sermon, like what are we doing here? Why are we enduring this? The, the, I think the first 39 chapters, if you've been reading through Isaiah with us, the first 39 chapters can feel a little bit like that. Isaiah is looking at this war-torn world, he's looking at all of this suffering, he's looking on the horizon of God's people. And he sees exile in their future. He sees devastation, them being taken from their land. He sees all of the different ways that people on a global scale and individually have caused harm and suffering in one another's lives. And he looks even with his own people, the people of God who are supposed to be faithful to God. And he sees a people who have been anything but faithful who ostracize the poor, who take advantage and exploit those without power, who, who leverage themselves for their own power. He looks at all of this. And the first 39 chapters can kind of feel like the space of like, man, I thought we said this was the promise of Isaiah. Is the promise just that everything is gonna be terrible? Like, is it just gonna all be awful forever? And then in chapter 40, there's this turning of the page where Isaiah begins to see something different. In the midst of all the suffering and all the chaos and all the devastation, Isaiah looks to the future and he asks this question, how will God solve the problem of sin and suffering in the world? What is God going to do about it? And as he asks that question and as he looks on the horizon, Isaiah is given these visions of a king, a great king. 
A king that he sees as someone who will enter into human history. And he will be so powerful and so majestic and so glorious that all the suffering, all the chaos, all the anxiety and all of the depression and all of the things that we deal with in our lives on a daily basis and on a global scale, that this great king will come to put an end to those things. Amen. And then there's another twist. Because this majestic, glorious king who is coming to save and to redeem and to make things restored, Isaiah gets another glimpse of him and he looks just like you and me. He suffers just like you and me. It doesn't look like he has any power or any, any way that he can actually solve the world's problems. He, he looks like just another victim of the world that you and I encounter every day. And, and he calls this person the servant. And in Isaiah 53, we see this picture of a servant who is doing the will of God. There's nothing wrong with him. He's living out what God has told him to do. And yet he experiences all the harshness and brokenness and animosity and violence and heartache that we experience every day. And, and there's something that happens within Isaiah as he sees this, this picture of this servant, where it, it kind of subverts all of the expectations of this king who would come to set things right. This king who was promised to make the world a better place. Because Isaiah begins to see a vision of someone who, who, who doesn't have the power to make things right. He, he sees a, a servant who is utterly humiliated by the worst things this world has to offer. And, and so picking up in, in verse 1 of 53, Isaiah begins to see this theme of a man who isn't majestic, but he's the opposite of the king that he had seen a glimpse of, the opposite of what he had expected to come and set things right. He, he sees a man of very little worth. What Isaiah sees in this servant is someone who, who has no connections, no majesty, no power. If you think of all the ways that we assign value to people in this world, so much of it is about how people look, right? It's about what people can accomplish. It's about who people know. This servant has none of those things. In fact, his appearance is, is something that, that kind of causes people to look away. There's nothing on his LinkedIn page that would cause people to want to hire him. I mean, this person, he's a nobody. There's nothing in his appearance or in what he is able to do that would cause us to think, yeah, this is the person who can fix everything wrong in the world. And in fact, what's fascinating is I was reading this week that most people, uh, we can make pretty snap judgments about others. We, we can look at other people and we get a pretty good idea really quickly whether or not we like them. In fact, uh, most like sociologists and psychologists would say that it takes less than 30 seconds to decide. And some of you hear that number, you're like, wow, I can do it a lot quicker than that. 30 seconds is not what I, like someone says, bruh, and I'm, I'm out. I know immediately that I don't like that person. I want nothing to do with them, Right. Like, we can make really snap judgments about other people. But have you ever been on the receiving end of that? Have you ever felt the experience of rejection 
where, where without even like hardly saying anything, you just felt, you just knew that this person you just met, this person you encountered, they wanted nothing to do with you. There was nothing in you that, that they saw as desirable or that they wanted to get to know you better. It's like, I'm good. I felt that one time in, in a fairly comical way when I was a youth pastor. Um, and it actually surprisingly wasn't with students, although they can make you feel judged real quick. Um, but I was at camp up in Estes Park with our, our high school students, and we take them up to camp every year. And uh, there's this thing that happens uh, at camp with high school kids from Waterstone where they kind of catch the idea that, that our name is Waterstone, and we sometimes call ourselves Waterstoners. And high school kids think that's really funny to just shorten it and call themselves the stoners. And so they would like create chants at rec time about how we were the stoners and they would have like symbols and also like they would do this thing and I, I like, I don't even know if I wanna repeat it cause I'm afraid I'll like get fired for just telling you what the kids did. But they would literally like inhale something and then like draw a W like to signify that we were all from Waterstone. And I, I, it drove me nuts. I was like, you guys have got to stop doing that. You can't chant about how we're the stoners at church camp. Like, you can't do that. That's not okay. And there were all these churches from Texas who were like with us, and they were like, what is going on? Like, Texas and Colorado are not the same thing. And it got so bad. They, they did this every day. And to make matters worse, it happened in rec, and they like were terrible at rec, so it looked like it was true about what they were saying about themselves. I mean, it was so painful, and I could not get them to stop. It got so bad that on the, the second day, just the second day of a four-day camp, um, at our youth pastor meeting, there's a hundred youth pastors gathered into a room, and we're all circled up looking at one another, sharing stories about camp, and everybody's talking about what God is doing, and it's amazing. And then before the meeting ends, the, the head director of the camp, he just says, hey, and we also, we got to take a moment. We just need to address something. Uh, people have been asking some questions, and then they look directly at me, and they say, the camp does not condone the smoking of marijuana. And they say, we need you to reiterate with all of your students and let them know that no one condones at this camp that smoking marijuana is okay. And I'm just like crushed. I'm like sinking into my chair. Like everybody knows who I am. I'm like, I'm trying to get them to stop, but I can't. I mean, it's just that like whole space of 100 pastors judging you for how you are running your youth ministry. And you've maybe not felt it on that level or in that kind of comical way, but, but I'm assuming that you've felt in different experiences of rejection, of feeling judged. And what Isaiah is saying about this suffering servant is that he is a person familiar with judgment and rejection. That when people look at him, they find nothing that they want to associate with. And not only is he a person of very little worth, this servant is also someone who's incredibly familiar with suffering. Isaiah uses some of the most violent language in the entire Hebrew language to tell us of the experience this servant has of suffering. His, his figure is marked and distorted. People can hardly bear to look at him because of his suffering. He is crushed, which is a term often in Scripture used to describe what happens to bugs. And, and he's pierced. It's some of the most violent language in all of the Hebrew language. 
And, and I think some of us who are familiar with this, we can say, yeah, crushed and oppressed and afflicted and pierced. And we can almost breeze past it because past it, we've heard those words so many times before. But if you actually stop to think about the image of, of what it means to be pierced. One time I was on a, a mission trip in Mexico as a high school student. I was 14 years old. And for some reason, we decided to take a mission trip as a 14-year-old uh, to build a house because everybody wants their house built by a 14-year-old who's never held a hammer before, am I right? And so we're in Mexico, and, and one day I'm carrying these like pails of bricks to, to start putting this house together. And I didn't see it, but there was a, a board on the ground that had a nail sticking up out of it. And I'm wearing tennis shoes on a, on a work site, and I step on the nail, and it goes through my foot. That noise that you just heard, that is pierced, Right? I mean, we, we can assume and we can hear this language and think, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but if we actually stop to think about the words that Isaiah uses to describe this servant and the way that he suffers, his suffering goes beyond what we can even imagine. Isaiah is at a loss for words to describe the fate of this person. In fact, he says that his suffering is so great that he is beyond human recognition. Pierced, broken, and oppressed. And the question is, why is this servant suffering so much? Why is he someone of so little worth? Why is he someone that so many people have rejected? And let's talk about suffering for a moment. Because in your and my life, there are often three reasons why we suffer. This is at least my experience, and I would even argue that Scripture would make this argument, that one reason we suffer in this world is that when we look at the world, something has gone terribly wrong in the world itself. That we live in a world of brokenness and suffering and devastation. We live in a world of diseases that spread throughout the world. We live in a world where babies don't always grow to full term, where nations invade other nations. Something has gone terribly wrong in the world we live in. And sometimes our experience in this life and in this world is, is just simply because Something is terribly wrong and broken about the world that we live in. But, but it's not only that. Sometimes we suffer because of the people around us in the world. Sometimes we suffer because people around us make certain choices, maybe cause us to hurt or harm us intentionally or unintentionally. It doesn't matter who you are, all of us have been harmed by someone else. None of us makes it through life with our hearts fully intact. We've all experienced rejection. We've been violated in different ways. We've been treated unjustly. We've been ignored and neglected. At one point or another, all of us will experience suffering because of the people around us and how they treat us. These are the moments where someone says the words that no matter how hard you try, you can't get them out of your head. That feeling that you have that, that maybe you've never been loved because your father was too busy to spend time with you. Those wounds that we carry, the ways that people in our lives have caused us trauma and rejection and tragedy. But Isaiah looks at the world and he says, suffering even goes deeper than that. 
that actually it's not just because the world itself is broken and people around you are broken. It's that something has actually gone wrong inside of you and inside of me. And that none of us are simply victims in our own story, but, but many of us are actually villains in other people's stories. That the way we interact with one another, the, the way that we treat others, the way that we can't get over our own self-centeredness and selfishness, the way that we cause pain in others. It's that moment where you choose the exact right words that you know your loved one or your spouse or your child won't be able to forget. It's those moments where our pain that we've experienced is spewed back out into the world and causes harm for those people that sometimes we love the most. See, Isaiah looks at the world and he says, something has gone terribly, terribly wrong. And for most of us, the reason we suffer comes down to one of these three reasons. And it can get murky sometimes, can it? But like sometimes it's almost impossible not to assume that, man, maybe the big thing, the suffering that's going on in my life, the cancer that my loved one has, or the way that we can't ever get on top of the bills, or whatever it might be, that it's not just because the world is broken, but you think it's maybe because you're responsible for that. That, that, that somehow God is punishing you or that the world or universe is punishing you because of what you've done. And so you're experiencing the worst the world ha- has to offer. It, it can get murky, can it? Where, where we wonder, man, did, am I caught? What, why is this happening? You see, and Isaiah sees this suffering servant and he says that, that what's remarkable about this person is that he is suffering because the world is broken. And he is suffering because of how people have treated him, but he has done nothing wrong himself. He's committed no violence. There's no deceit in him. That that when they look at him, he is suffering so miserably that, that the people assume that God must be punishing him because of something he has done, only to realize that the only reason he is suffering, what Isaiah says, is, is because he chose to bear the suffering that we have caused one another. That, that he chooses to suffer and to take upon himself all of the hatred and bitterness and violence that we commit against one another that he himself has not participated in, that that he bears that upon himself. Not only that, but that he chooses to bear the pain and suffering that simply exists in the world because it's broken. That, That he chooses to enter into the space of suffering and experience all of the heartache and longing and disappointment and frustration that we have in this life. He takes that upon himself. See, the the way Isaiah kind of summarizes this dichotomy with suffering is that we all suffer because we, like sheep, have gone astray. That the reason suffering exists in the world and the reason we experience suffering is because we have somehow left God's design 
And so therefore, suffering has entered into the world. But not so with this suffering servant. In verses 7 through 9, it says this. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Notice the the change in imagery. We all are like sheep who have gone astray. We have run away. And this innocent lamb who remains has taken on the punishment. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? Who cared that this was his fate? He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. This servant who is rejected, detested, his death is just like his life. He is buried with the wicked even though he was innocent. When it says that he was buried even with the rich, what Isaiah is saying there is that that the rich people of Isaiah's time who have exploited the poor, who have caused oppression and afflicted others, he is buried with them. That all the people that, that you would never care if anything happened to them, that is his fate. He is buried with the least loved and the least desired, even though he was innocent. He, he experiences this death and this suffering. But, but there's something that happens within this song where, where there's another shift, another turn. Because suddenly this suffering servant, he he becomes the great king who was promised to make everything right. This person, this servant who looks like they have no power, who looks like they're a victim of this world that you and I are a victim of, suddenly he becomes the exalted king. This is what Isaiah says in verse 11. And after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Death is not the end of him. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Not only is death not the end of him, not only is he raised to life, but he also raises others. He brings life to others. His crushing and his piercing and his suffering brings healing and wholeness to the world that's been wounded. And therefore... God gives him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. You you see, this humiliated servant becomes the exalted king, the king who will come to set the world right. And it is actually through his humiliation, through his suffering, that he has the power to overturn everything that has gone wrong in the world, which really defies all of our expectations and all of our stories, doesn't it? I mean, so many of our stories, when when we look at the the brokenness in the world, when we look at the, the evil empires, we want someone to come. We want a hero to rise up and re and bring balance to the force, right? Like all of our stories, all of our narratives are about people who attack the evil empire. And yet there's something about the suffering servant that it's actually in his absorption 
of evil, not in his attacking of evil and sin and suffering, that he's able to bring healing and restoration to the world. That it's in this suffering servant's death and humiliation that that he brings life. That that he absorbs hatred and transforms it back into love. That he absorbs bitterness and purifies it and gives back graciousness. This servant took on curses and filtered them and gave back blessing. He absorbed murder and gave back forgiveness. Forgiveness. You see, unlike you and I, who who when we suffer, when we experience the worst this world has to offer, and when we spew that back out to the world, this servant absorbs it and filters it and takes all of that shame, all of that guilt, all of that suffering, all of that devastation, and somehow transforms it and brings back love and forgiveness and justice and mercy and healing for the wounds that we have endured and the wounds that we have given. He takes all of that upon himself. Now, if you've been around church for any period of time, you you may have caught and know who the suffering servant is and who we believe the suffering servant is. And I've refrained from using his name until now. Because as I was studying this passage this week, it's almost impossible for us not to see Jesus within these words, isn't it? I mean, when you look at the story of Jesus in the Gospels, it's almost impossible not to see this and not not recognize that these words were written 700 years before Jesus took his first breath. It's almost impossible for us not to see his suffering, his choices, the way that he endured the worst things this world had to offer. And as I was thinking about it, Isaiah's writing these words, I don't know what he sees. I don't know what glimpse he is getting into the future. I don't know if he sees a man hanging on a cross or if God is just giving him some sort of vision of, of, of ambiguity. But something is happening in this promise where God is saying all of the suffering, all of the pain, everything that we endure every single day of our lives, God is doing something about it and he is working to undo it. And for hundreds of years, people prayed for a superman. They prayed for a king. They prayed for someone who would come and set it right. And instead, Jesus steps onto the scene. And instead of being born in a palace and in majesty and glory, he's born in a barn and laid in straw. And when he steps onto the scene, he doesn't come as a conquering warrior. Do you remember what John says when he begins his ministry? Behold the lamb who has come to take away the sins of the world. And when he gathers a following and people are rallying to his cry and want to be a part of his kingdom and ask him to overthrow the Roman Empire, he allows himself to be crucified and murdered. You see, he defies all expectations. 
See, there's something about Jesus that it's not through the conquering of evil and suffering and devastation. He's not fighting fire with fire. He's not returning violence for violence. He is absorbing it and transforming it and so that he can say, it is finished. That because of his death, his suffering, his pain endured, There is coming a day that will end all suffering and all pain. That every paper cut and every stub toe, that that every amputation in this life will somehow be healed and transformed because of what he endured. That this suffering servant would suffer for the world See, when Jesus comes to the final night of his life, the night that he would be betrayed, the night before his suffering, in Luke chapter 22, as he gathers his disciples around him, this is what he says. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. He's quoting Isaiah 53 in this moment. He's quoting all of Isaiah 53, the the challenge of the suffering servant, the song of suffering. He is saying, in me, this will be fulfilled. That I am the king who has come to set all things right. But I've come to do it in the way you least expected to endure the suffering and violence of this world, and through my wounds, you will be healed. See, I I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know if you're in a season like me where it feels like death by a thousand paper cuts, and it's just the cumulative effect of life that you're enduring. I don't know if for you, you're in a season of life that feels more like an amputation where you're grieving the loss of a loved one, your marriage is hanging by a thread, where your kids have walked away and cut you off. I don't know what suffering you're enduring. I think the only thing I can say to you, the only hope I can give you in whatever season you find yourself in, is that there is a God named Jesus who sees and knows your experience, who knows what it's like to feel the hopeless weight of despair. And it is because of his suffering and his death that all of the shame and guilt and heartache that we endure on a daily basis will one day be healed. that we do not suffer without hope because Jesus makes this life sufferable, that we can endure because the promise of Jesus is that all of these promises and the promise of Isaiah will be finished in him and completed in him and that because of him, symphonies will not have to remain unfinished forever but will one day find their perfect harmony when he brings us home. 
Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, I know there are so many different stories in this room. God, I know that there are so many wounds. The things that we have done to one another, the things that we have experienced. God, I pray that you would bring wholeness to the heartache. That as Isaiah says, that healing can be found, that because of your wounds, our wounds can be healed. God, I pray right now, I, I ask that your spirit would move in and bring a foretaste of that healing that we know will one day be completed, but that is possible now. God, I, I pray for comfort for the grieving. I pray for peace for the restless. God, I pray and ask that in the name of Jesus, we could experience a little more wholeness today. We believe that because of what Jesus endured, that one day we are headed for that reality, but we ask that it would break through in our lives today. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, that we pray. Amen. Amen.